Alrighty, welcome to another episode of Constructed Resources. We're going to be doing a deep dive this week on Naya Winota, the deck that last week I thought was too inconsistent. This week I think is very good, <laughs> but that's what a week of uh, playtesting and facing this and uh, various cues will do to you, and uh, I do think it's the best deck in standard, so we're going to be going deep on how to play it, how to build it, and its game plans, as well as sideboarding, and then of course how to beat it. So that's what's coming up for you. But BK, I forgot to ask, how how is this fine night treating you? Oh, thanks, Luis. I'm doing all right. You know, it's a beautiful day here in Denver. Had a nice little dinner outside earlier with some friends, and now we're going to have a, a lovely time recording constructed resource with a uh, work associate former testing teammate. <laughs> uh, as always, this show is brought to you by Channel Fireball. You can head on over to channelfireball.com to pick up all the cards you need for your Winota deck or the deck that's going to beat the Winota deck or really anything else you need magic related. And of course, if you buy anything from Channel Fireball or sign up for CFB Pro, which is a good move, by the way, go ahead and use the code CR. Show the podcast some love. All right, let's kick things off with the deck of the week before we get into this all Winota content. Yeah, so, you know, normally when we do a deep dive, we just sort of make that the deck of the week. But uh, Iwanota was our deck of the week last week, and it's still sort of proven worth more exploration, but we didn't want to deprive you of getting a fresh deck of the week. And so anytime there's a, a chance to win a tournament with Bolas of Citadel, we always want to let you know about that. And Jun Citadel in Pioneer has gotten a real big boost thanks to a new card from Adventures of the Forgotten Realm, one that we'll be talking about today. Prosperous Innkeeper showing up as a four of in Jun Citadel list now. And it's actually just a really perfect fit for what the Jun Citadel deck wants to do and to go with Bolus of Citadel in particular because it's a creature that you can put into play off of Collected Company that gives you a treasure that you can use to accelerate out your six drop. And then critically, that ability of it when you play another creature to gain one life that is really fantastic. It means that we can now no longer play something like Zulapur Cutthroat, which was never really that necessary for the deck to be able to win the game because the reality is as long as you had one copy of Mayhem Devil plus enough permanence to sack to Bull as a Citadel, that was enough for lethal damage. It was nice that Zulapur Cutthroat could help you win the game in some type spots, but the big thing it did was gain you life. And so now we get to make a Mana Accelerator also gain you life so you can keep chaining off with Bolas of Citadel. Just an absolute perfect combination of the two. And so that has propelled Jun Citadel back to the top of the sort of the tier list for Pioneer. And uh, yeah, it makes me want to dust off my Bolas of Citadels. Yeah, that deck was always a ton of fun to play. And uh, the Innkeeper looks like, well, basically, as you said, the perfect addition. Yeah, and it's really nice, too, because a big thing that it does is it makes you a little bit less reliant on the graveyard. It's not that the graveyard was the biggest thing going on with the deck, and so a card like Rest in Peace or Grafdigger's Cage, it's not that they necessarily completely bricked you, but, you know, when they had a Rest in Peace out, it meant that creatures weren't dying, therefore Zulaport Cutthroat wasn't triggering. None of that's true with Prosperous Innkeeper. And so the fact that you get to sort of dodge that kind of hate is just another way to make the deck even a little bit more resilient. It's not that people were playing Rest in Peace in their sideboard to beat Jun Citadel. They were, might be playing it because it's really good against something um, like the uh, like the Underworld Breach decks, I guess. Well, and some of the Rakdos like Pyromancer style decks with Kroxa. But uh, in this particular case, 
uh, they would still bring it in against you as a Citadel player. Now you don't have enough to worry about it. All right. Well, that deck looks sweet. If you're uh, looking to to test out the the new Citadel deck, by all means do so. But uh, let's get to some Naya Winota here, since uh, if you're playing in the Mythic Invitational Qualifier this weekend, this is a deck you should highly consider playing, and at the very least understand how it works and how to beat it. Uh, when I played in the Arena Open last weekend, I ended up playing Rogues. I went three and two, which isn't really what I was hoping for on day two, but I beat three Winota decks uh, before losing to the Mirror and Mono Green. And uh, yeah, there was just a decent amount of Winota in the queues. Yeah, you know, last week we were sort of recommending against Naya Winota, and I don't know that we're necessarily changing that, but certainly what we saw last weekend was just a, a really nice follow-up performance, despite a lot of people having it on their radar, really sort of showing its legs as a a resilient enough deck that even if people were aware this was a Tier 1 option, Naya Winota is not certainly going to go away just because of that. And so, like you mentioned, if you have the Mythic Invitational Qualifier or you have an upcoming standard event that you might be playing in, uh, hopefully this episode will be of particular interest to you. But as always, I think one of the things we really try to do with our deep dives is, you know, we're not just talking about what it is that may allow you to win with this deck or beat this deck, but we're going through some of the fundamental magic concepts. Why? What is our approach when we see a deck like this in terms of trying to distill the best possible play patterns and approaches? And likewise, you're always going to be confronted in Magic with the task of, hey, I'm playing against something, I'm seeing a deck list, and I have to beat it in a tournament, and I don't have a time to go play test it. What are the sorts of things that are on your mind in terms of breaking it down and trying to give yourself the best possible chance? Because Naya like most modern decks in the sense of uh, decks of this time period, are not just single-focused. They are not one-dimensional. It's In the past, you would expect combos to... a lot. It was much more common that a combo deck would be built around doing the combo and then finding and protecting the combo. Naiwinota, as we'll get into, attacks from a variety of angles. It still has an uber-powerful combo, but that's not the only thing going on with it and not the only thing that you have to concern yourself. All right, so uh, if you haven't seen this deck, you, you maybe you haven't played Standard in a bit, Plus, this is this is the newest deck in standard. This is, I think, the only like really heavy hitting deck that is not a previous deck. It's not like oh, you know, Rogue's got a couple cards or Gruul got a couple cards. This is a new deck. And what is the what is the overall game plan here? What what, what would you, how would you describe the Winota deck? Yeah. So first off, in terms of categorization, that's not necessarily the most important place to start. But to give you an idea of what we're dealing with. It's a mid-range aggro and combo deck. It's kind of all three in one. And one of the big strengths of this deck is the variety of styles of games it can play. So at a surface, we are talking about Winota. And, you know, obviously, it, maybe you're not a complete stranger to Winota. But, you know, if you are, let's just... Let, we're going to be talk, spending a lot of time talking about a deck named after Winota this weekend. Let's make sure we understand the key card in question. Two red and white, we get a legendary creature, Human Warrior. And it's a 4-4. So we got a four-mana 4-4 four, four in Boros. And whenever a non-human creature you control attacks, look at the top six cards of your library. You may put a human creature card from among them onto the battlefield tapped and attacking. It gains indestructible until end of turn. That's the creature you're putting into play, not the Winota. And then you're going to put the rest of those cards that you looked at from the top six on the bottom of your library in a random order. So first of all, the big thing here is we've got this sort of non-human call out on the card whenever we attack with a non-human creature and that means not and that means that this ability triggers when we attack with one but it also triggers when we attack with 
two, three, four, five plus, and it'll trigger multiple times for each of them. And so we've got this non-human creature call out, and then it's going to put a human creature card from among them onto the battlefield tapped and attacking. So in terms of typically, and in the case of this deck, how that manifests is you're trying to play a combination of the best cheap non-human attacking creatures, and that can come in the form of tokens or actual cards. But we also particularly like to have useful abilities among those creatures. And so we're not necessarily just looking for the most evasive or the fastest or the hardest hitting, but cards that will work in different ways. A great example of that is Selfless Savior as a one-mana 1-1 dog that can sack to give a creature indestructible. This card is both quite versatile in terms of the things that can do in the game, in addition to being a one-drop non-human creature that can attack. The second big piece of the puzzle with any Winota deck is always going to be, what humans are you putting into play? And so in the case of this deck, the biggest and baddest one of them is, I would say, Blade Historian. And that is, it's red-white hybrid, red-white hybrid, red-white hybrid, red-white hybrid for a 2-3. And it means, and it has the, it's a human that gives your attacking creatures double strike. The great thing about this is that as as it comes into play attacking with Winota from that trigger, not only will it have death double strike and be attacking, but all of your attacking creatures will as well. So that's pretty great, including the ones you get later in the turn as it's not just a trigger, but it's sort of an ongoing passive effect. The other big human we're going to be dealing with is Kenrith the Returned King. That's the four and a white by five human that has a variety of useful activated abilities, one for each color. Those abilities include things like R, give all of your creatures, give all creatures trample and haste. One at a green, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature. And then the one that all, and then two in a white target player gains five life. Three in a blue, draw a card, and then five mana, four in a black. You get to uh, put a creature from an, a graveyard under its owner's, gra- like the their control. The big thing there with that one, don't target your opponent's graveyard stuff. It's a like a more of a commandery designed card. If you target, you are, it will let you target something in the opponent's graveyard, but it'll go into play on their side. So it's nice. It can reanimate your own stuff. And so throwing a lot at you, but what we're talking about here is a bunch of non-humans that are good at attacking. You play a Winota and then the, and then you put in some good humans that are good at attacking in they can finish off the game super fast, but one of the nice things is that in the version of Naya Winota deck we're dealing with here, Luis, these cards aren't just useful when you have Winota. You can just draw them and cast them. This deck is uh, surprisingly good in games where it doesn't draw Winota, and it actually that's part of, I think, the reason that it actually takes advantage of this format is when you play this deck against someone and they are prepared to answer Winota, like one of the best plays you can make, and we'll talk about this later, is like Asika's Chariot. They leave up <laughs> removal, you play the cat, the Cadillac, as it were, and make a couple tokens, plus you get this pretty powerful vehicle on the board. Well, their their power word kill looks pretty dumb. And when they are, you know, killing all your stuff early, maybe killing your Lotus Cobras or killing your, pro, you know, well, you don't really kill Prosperous Innkeeper, but killing your Selfless Saviors or Tangled Forahedrons to try to like cut them off at the pass, they can just cast a Minsk and then cast a Kenrith, and all of a sudden, well, you used a bunch of removal spells on their two drops and one drops, and their five drops are still very, very powerful. So I, I really like the, the approach you're taking here because this deck isn't looking to play, you know, one mana two ones. That's not that's not this kind of deck. All of the cheap creatures that can attack do something useful otherwise, and the, all the big creatures that you put into play with Winota or have later are either disruptive like Elite Spellbinder or just powerful like Minsk or Kenrith or Blade Historian. 
So let's talk real quick about, you know, we mentioned it's a mid-range aggro and combo deck, a three-for-one. Who doesn't love a good three-for-one? What are the basic game plans when we say it's each of those decks? So as an aggro deck, we're just taking decently, but not great cost-statted cards that cost one to three mana. And then, so that's just all of your things like your selfless saviors into your Magdas potentially, or just your prosperous innkeepers and and then following that up with like elite spellbinders and Minsk beloved rangers. And the big thing that we're getting all of that is that we just have a curve of cards that can attack. One of the things that you'll learn over the years, sort of in magic, if you if maybe you haven't played as much on the competitive scene, is like never underrate when you just have a curve of creatures, the degree to which you can win a game by just attacking with them. Just people sometimes stumble out of the gates. They have weird draws. They're just and the fact that you just go to the board first can just win you a game. This deck does have a couple of big effects, like an aggro deck wants to try to come over the top besides just Winota. Things like Blade, Historian, Asikas, Chariot, and the Creature Land Lair, the Hydra, it's particularly nice as a way to sort of take advantage of some early damage. Then let's talk about it as a mid-range deck. As a mid-range deck, we've got everything from things like Shatter Skull Smashing and potentially Bone Crusher Giant as interaction. We always like an Elite Spellbinder is another way to sort of make sure you're dealing with the most powerful part of your opponent's draw. But we also get some nice two-for-ones if you play with cards like Minsk, Elite Spellbinder, Ranger Class. These are all things that are sort of giving you value that make it so, hey, maybe your opponent's killing some stuff, but now you're not necessarily falling behind. In fact, you're getting ahead as a result. And then lastly, just as a combo deck, well, as a combo deck, we're kind of just, I would say Naya Winota is a bit of a one-card combo in the sense of you have your deck is mostly a lot of things that work with one card. And whenever you have that experience, one card combo feels the most appropriate way to describe it because it's kind of like, I'm not really making these things pieces work together and I'm not really trying to you know necessarily do anything super creative. I'm just, I play my card and the output that I get is so extreme compared to the norm, which it often is in the case of Winota, that it really does feel appropriate to call it a one card combo deck. And so cards like Jaspera Sentinel and Prosperous Innkeeper or Lotus Cobra Accelerating out Winota is just means we get to sort of one card combo even faster. And then an early Asika's Chariot is also sort of a snowballing. You continue to pull farther ahead in terms of the amount of things you have to work with every turn that card is in play. And it is particularly nice to get a card like that out early. Not quite as strong as Sar as a like one card combo snowballing advantage sort of thing. But it's still pretty good, and so you definitely want to be aware of that as a potential direction to take the games when you're looking at your opening hands that just, hey, a hand with Lotus Cobra and a Seekers Chariot on the play really has the potential to put a hurting on an opponent. It's funny that you you describe it as a one-card combo because it, it is in the sense that you just cast Winota and it works for all the cards in the deck. But how many card choices do you think this deck makes it because it wants to play four Winotas and make them good? Like right. it, it completely shapes the, the, you know, all the rest of the deck. And it's true that the other cards kind of do stand on their own. We've kind of discussed all these different powerful cards, but you don't get to two Kenrith, two or three Blade Historian, two Minsk, you know, a bunch of prosperous innkeepers and selfless saviors if you weren't trying to maximize Winota. But of course, the strength then comes back to the fact that those cards just happen to be pretty good ones in and of themselves. Yeah, I mean... If you want to put it in Splinter Twin terms, which people often want to do, it's like this deck just has like 20-something Deceiver Exarchs and Pestermites. And at a certain point, when you have that many, 
it doesn't really feel like a two card combo because if I just always have one half of it, it's really just about finding one piece. Um, so what? And, it's, and so let's tie it all together because you know we sort of breaking down each of the way that you can sort of play the game and approach the game with the Naya Winota deck. Your job and your game plan is to really sort of spend some time being thoughtful each hand, each game, each matchup, each turn, trying to identify what your role is, how the game might change, what your opponent might be doing to interact with each of these plans, which plans sort of seem available to you, and then ultimately deciding on and working towards whichever approach is going to get you across the finish line. One of the things that you'll often encounter for players in strategic games is this idea of flexibility, keeping your options open. And that's oftentimes what you want to do with a deck like Naiwinota. It's not like you're looking at your opening hand, and we'll get more into that later, and being like, well, this is a combo game, and I'm going to be all about comboing. But in reality, it's, well, the game could go this way or that way, and I'm going to tr- make this play because it not only works in, in the kind of game where I'm trying to beat down fast, but it also works in the kind of game where maybe I need to deal with something fast coming back the other way, and then I need to be a little bit more of a mid-range deck that's interacting with my opponent's stuff. So let's go ahead and take a look at the the, the deck list and like what cards you have because it again you look at these de- different one other deck lists and they seem just like a mishmash a bunch of you know there's some four ofs but there's a bunch of two ofs three ofs and one ofs. And I kind of want to break it down because after looking at a bunch of different Winota lists, uh, seeing what people are playing, and then kind of evaluating the the cards, I, there are a bunch of slots which I don't really think you should change that I would consider locked. And actually, when I look through this, I really don't think you should change very many cards. At, at, like, there's a pretty solid core. Like, there, there's the four ofs, uh, Elite Spellbinder, Winota, Prosperous Innkeeper, and Selfless Savior. And uh, Isika's Chariot. So that's 20 cards right off the bat. Just don't think you should go to less than four of any of those cards. Selfless Savior protects Winota and is a non-human attacker. Prosperous Innkeeper does all the things you mentioned earlier. You need four Winotas. Elite Spellbinder is the best human because you don't mind drawing multiples. It's on curve to just cast. And uh, it, it can really help when you get it off Winota and disrupting their next plan. And then Asika's Chariot is the perfect setup for Winota or for card to play before Winota when your opponent leaves up mana. So again, th- those I think are locks. And then you want to look at which humans you want to put into play. Besides the four Spellbinders, uh, I think that you could look at two Kenrith, two Minsk Beloved Ranger, two Blade Historian, which brings you up to 10, which doesn't sound like a, 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 you know, a huge amount, but you're looking at six cards for every non-human attack, which with 10 in the deck gives you uh, about a 70% chance. And, and I, I got a way you can up your odds, Luis. What's that? You can put Winota into play. You could put Winota into play. I wasn't really counting putting a, putting a Winota into play. Oh, it's play, a real deal. I mean, you will get legend ruled in that you'll have to choose the new one. You do get a 4-4 indestructible turns- attacker. Right. It turns Winota from just a 4-4, like, hey, awesome things are happening with this, but she's not getting in the action into, as you mentioned, 4-4 indestructible haste. It's not It's not necessarily as good as hitting a mint score, a Kenrith off of your trigger, but as far as a floor for when you don't hit those, that's yeah. a pretty big deal. Uh, and and especially you- with Blade Historian, sometimes one more substantially sized human coming into play attacking, yeah, that is an that's additional the game. 8 points of damage right there. Uh, for more accelerants besides the innkeepers. Your options are Jaspera Sentinel, Lotus Cobra, and Tangled Florahedron. As of as of right now, I think you want to run three Sentinel, one Florahedron, and either two or three Lotus Cobras. 
just as a, a kind of mix. Jesper Sentinel being a one drop is really nice, even though it does require other creatures to work. And then um, Florahedra is nice because th this deck typically runs 24 lands plus two flip lands. Uh, most commonly, one Florahedron, one Shatter Skull smashing, and having that as the take up a land slot is is really appealing. And then the last couple things is uh, Ranger class. That's the you know one in a green make a two two enchantment. You can once you level it up to two, you get a plus one plus one counter on an attacker. And then the 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 third mode is actually really good for the long games where you spend four an additional four mana, and now you can play creatures off the top of your deck. So one to two Ranger classes, and. Uh, Past that, there's also the possibility of playing a Magda. This is the dwarf that makes uh, treasures when it, when one of your dwarves become tapped. And then um, if you want like a third blade historian. But overall, I mean, we're talking like two or three flex slots in this deck because I think most of uh, most of these cards, I mean, there's a reason that everyone plays them. This is about the optimal number, even if it might look weird to play, you know, a bunch of two ofs and three ofs. Yeah, I mean, it's... One of the big things is is with a Winota deck is that you're just going to actually see a substantial amount of cards in your deck. So when we talk about things like not playing the full four humans, it's well, a lot of the some of these humans in particular, like Minsk and Kenrith and Winota, they're all legendary. And so hitting multiples of them, hitting one when off the Winota trigger when you already have one in play, well, maybe it's not as consistently as good as as you think as another one, but. It's one of those cases where A plus B is certainly better than getting two of A. And and that that is that's kind of what dictates the the, the mix that we have here. Uh, I also think that Lair of the Hydra is worth mentioning. This is the the creature land mm. where not only does it offer an additional non-human attacker for Winota on certain turns, even as just a one-one. Uh, also, sometimes you just sink seven mana into it in the late game after they they blew up all your creatures. Yeah, I mean it. One of the things that I think has gotten so much better about the Winota deck is that in addition to, you know, always having some pretty solid accelerators in the form of Jaspera Sentinel and Lotus Cobra, and now we get to add Prosperous Innkeeper, the deck has gotten so much better at sinking mana between Mint's Beloved Ranger's X ability, where you can pay X as a sorcery to give make one of your creatures an XX base power and toughness in the of turn, or Lair of the Hydra's ability <coughs> to both be like sort of a two-mana 1-1 one, one attacker to just proc Winota, or in the late game, if you've hit a lot of lands, you've had a bunch of Prosperous Innkeepers, you can just sink a ton of mana and get an XX attacker out of it. And so it's no longer the case where it's like, hey, I just sort of ran out of stuff to do with my mana. I, I drew kind of awkwardly. It's way more likely that these cards for a deck, which is, you know, a little bit sort of distorted and varied at times, being able to smooth out those rough edges of I just drew so many accelerators and my one Winota died with Lair of the Hydra. It's like, well, you've just got kind of a big creature that can keep coming, keep coming in and can't die to things like Binding of the Old Gods. I, I would play three, by the way. I think that I think mm -hmm. that I think that playing two Lair of the Hydras is, is is not being ambitious enough with your mana base. It's not like it, the cost is immense because you can always play it as one of your first two lands. Yeah, I mean, the you have this deck is a little bit weird in the sense of like the the dual land options are not particularly attractive for it because this deck just wants very uh, smooth mana in terms of being able to use every mana in every turn, but it has very few traditional style dual lands. It's playing with a lot of pathways 
and things like a couple of copies of Fable Passage, the area where you get to make up for that is just Barra Sentinel, Prosperous Innkeeper, Lotus Cobra. These are all sorts of cards that can make all five colors worth of mana. And so sequencing, as we'll get into, is super duper important. Understanding what your mana allows you to do, playing the right side of the pathway is a big skill. Um, but it's not the sort of everything is free mana base. Sometimes in some formats, it's like <laughs> all of my lands are duels and all, and they just tap off for all the colors and it just doesn't matter what order. Um, this is a case where the auto tapper can't necessarily save you every time. If you just play your cards in the wrong order, the auto tapper will just look at you and be like, well, I don't know why you played a red card last turn instead of a white card, because now this turn you won't be able to play both of your white cards. You only have one white source. Yeah, you do. You do have to be fairly careful. I, I, it, I have seen a lot of people end up not being able to cast all the spells they want because the the deck does have a quite a stringent set of mana requirements. And one of the things that we're seeing in standard in general is uh, you get to play three colors by playing all these pathways. But man, when you have seven lands out, all of a sudden you 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 realize you only have one red mana. Like that can just happen yeah. really easily. The only card in the deck that's like super duper restrictive that you care about is blade historian because it's just like literally lair of the hydra and basic force can't help you with that any other sort of land except for like the green side of a pathway can just cast help you cast blade historian but the big thing is it's just like there's a lot of cards which just have like one or two or even three colored pips on it and so it's just if you don't aren't mindful of the fact that hey i have a bunch of green cards in my hand let me make sure i play both of these pathways on the green side, I'll still have red and white. Otherwise, that's where you get into tricky stuff where it's like, oh, I should have been able to do all of these things in a turn, but I just didn't plan it out a turn in advance. So uh, moving on from the main deck, uh, let's chat sideboard for, for a second here. Uh, we'll, we'll get into what sideboard cards maybe you want, like or what ratios you want when we talk about the matchups later. But in general, the I think the, the best sideboard cards certainly are like, Burning Hands, Ox of Agonis, Red Cap Melee, Ranger Class, the Acroan War, Bone Crusher Giant. And those like six cards, I think, will comprise most of your sideboard. There's also uh Clothies and uh Redane, but I, I'm 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 less high on those. So you're looking at mainly a mix of removal spells and <laughs> card advantage mechanisms in the sideboard of this deck. Yeah, the one other card I some I I definitely would keep in mind because it's a card uh, you'll you'll definitely see in other people's sideboards is Draneth Magistrate just because that what two mana um, one three human wizard it really gives you a lot of uh, power against potentially adventure decks where they just can't cast things from zones other than their hands. Yeah, that that is a that is a very strong card against the adventure decks and yeah something worth considering as well. They have a, they they can struggle with removing it given that it's a one three. All right, Luis, let's get into a little bit about playing the deck. So we've talked about the basic um, game plan, but how does each game of Magic begin? Well, after we choose who's going to go player first, it's time to look at opening hands. And so with a deck like this that can play so many game plans, um, it, it probably doesn't matter too much if you have Winota in your opening hand, right? Uh, the, the funny thing is it actually doesn't. Uh, I, I do think that you want Winota in your opening hand, but the most important thing to look for in your opening hand is, is, an, is a Mana Accelerant. There's a reason this deck plays so many. So it's Jaspera Sentinel, Lotus Cobra, Prosperous Innkeeper. One of one of those cards is really, or Tangled Florahedra, is really what you're looking for. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, this is a deck where 
all of its cards just generally are going to be better earlier and with more mana to pump into them, whether it's a Seeker's Chariot attacking early, Minsk having more time to pump, Kenrith having more time to activate, um, or just obviously the namesake Winota itself. Uh, you're you're going to love all of those things. Uh, Elite Spellbinder being a card that sort of is the earlier you sort of start messing with their hand, the better. And so, yes, um, this is, well, this deck does love having an early Winota and doing that. It's maybe not necessarily in this case as important as in past Winota decks because there's just a pretty solid um, variety of threats and things to use with your mana. We don't necessarily need to destroy ourselves for Winota. And, and that's why this deck, I think, it, it has the staying power that it does. So, yes, you would like to see Widota in your hand, but really anything that costs four or more mana or even just like a pair of Elite Spellbinders is good enough because the deck is is built to where if you can get to four mana on turn three, you usually have something pretty good to do with it, even if it's not exactly Winota. Yeah, and it, 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 I definitely think I underrated this Winota deck a little bit last week. You know, what, one of my more common experiences with Winota is playing against it in Pioneer. And in Pioneer, oftentimes you see a card played with it like Voice of Resurgence, for instance. And well, Voice of Resurgence is a fantastic card. There's no uh, no shame in playing that card. Against a lot of my decks, it really wasn't the thing I was worried about. And that um, you obviously love that card's versatility against things like Control, but it doesn't necessarily like do anything particularly aggressive. The way that this deck is constructed, a lot more concerning. Maybe a card like Elite Spellbinder is worse than Voice of Resurgence, but a three-power flyer that's messing with my hand, that is more consistently going to be a source of worry and anxiety for me in a game. And so that's the biggest thing that you have to watch out for with this deck. And and in general, one of the things that makes this deck so nice. Last thing I want to touch on on opening hands is mana bases, where... We just talked about how the mana base is inconsistent. You need to look at your lands before deciding whether to keep. <laughs> like, especially when you have a like a double pathway hand, where by playing them, like let's say you need to play them as as green and and white to make your first two plays, like say selfless savior, you know, into like lotus cobra innkeeper, you might be cutting yourself off from playing red cards afterwards. So you you do have to kind of pay attention to like, hey, how's my sequencing going to look when it comes to lands. And the other thing is looking for spots when to be greedy. I mean, it's there's not going to be an easy, simple heuristic we're going to be able to give you on this, though we'll try our best. But one of the things that you might encounter is your three-color deck with some lands that just don't tap for multiple colors very often. You might have something like a hand that just is has green and white mana, and you have multiple cards that use red mana or something like that, but for white, for instance. And you have, say, a Prosperous Innkeeper or... A Jaspera Sentinel, and so it's like, well, I can only use this treasure once, or maybe my Jaspera Sentinel gets killed. Do I keep a hand like that? The best thing that I would advise that I can give you, and I'm and Luis, I want you to weigh in as well, is really try to just spend some time thinking about not just how likely the hand is to work out, but how strong it is and how much time you have to potentially recover. When you're on the draw, you get an extra card. If the first couple of turns are nice and smooth and well planned out, despite this deficiency, you have some more time and more chances to find something. If the high end of your draw is really fantastic, that's great. If it's maybe also has just like multiple Asika's chariots, and so it's kind of awkward because they, because it's you know you're you're worried that they are not. It's going to take you a long time to get them out. Well, then maybe this isn't the case to keep a hand which has such points of fragility. But if the hand is really strong, it's going to have out an early Winota, 
but you're going to use up your only treasure getting it out, and then you won't be able to play another red card from your hand. Strongly consider if you want to just keep that hand and give yourself a chance to both high roll and ultimately fill out your hand once maybe the first Winota either just wins you the game or doesn't work out. This isn't a deck that gets to go off with tons of protection. Like, yes, sometimes it can have turn one savior, turn two Cobra, turn three Winota game. The game's just over. Very few decks can do anything about that. But you are just going to have to keep the hand where you play Winota off a treasure and maybe can't play any more red cards afterwards. And, you know, you you, you get to your... If all goes according to plan, you have your Prosperous Innkeeper attack. I mean, even going a step further, Forest Plains, Prosperous Innkeeper, Winota. I don't think I'd mulligan that regardless of what the other three cards were. I guess if it was like Kenrith, Kenrith, Blade Historian, that's, that you know, but that's a little extreme. Any sampling of random cards is likely to make that a keepable hand, even though, yeah, sometimes you won't draw the third land and you will just not cast Winota, but you don't get to... This deck's not so busted that you can mulligan looking for the perfect hand. There's very few decks that do end up that close. So if you have a hand that's very close to going off, just needs a land, or a hand that just needs you know a four drop or doesn't have any red mana, those are generally going to be uh, you know worth considering. The hands I don't like to keep are hands without accelerants or a hand that's like. But thing is, I would keep I would keep a hand that's like four land three accelerants in the in most cases if they're good ones, you know that that one's maybe a little weak. Maybe like three land three accelerants and like a mid like a elite spellbinder. Yeah, you you can't mulligan that hand. Yeah, I, I like those hands a lot more if I have something that's even just like Minsk elite spellbindery, something that's just allowing me to do something in the game. It's not that I'm not willing to take my chances on top decking either in a Seeker's Chariot. Or Winota, but it's like if my all of my eggs are in that basket, that's a little rough. And when you have, you know, one of those maybe more mid-rangey plays, you get an opportunity to potentially extend the game so that you have more time to hit those outs. I think overall on opening hands, this is a deck. Winota decks always want to keep a hand with a strong draw or a good potential to strong draw. It just happens that in this current iteration of the deck, that range extends beyond just Winota, as there are really some strong draws that don't involve Winota. So uh, looking at uh, the, the the first stage of the game, once you've decided to keep your hand, the the, the, the main skill you're going to need to develop here as people react to this deck are, is playing around removal, because the, that's where pe- people go. I mean, this is a creature-based deck. If you put in a bunch of creature removal, surely you'll solve the, the, the problem. Not quite that simple, of course, but one of the skills you're going to need to pick up is how do you beat cards like Powered Kill or even even harder, you know, Red Cap Melee or Raven Feeblant. These are some cards <laughs> that we're going to mention later when we talk about sideboarding. But the first stage is Azika's Chariot. This is the card that just trumps any removal spell so badly. They, they leave up a removal spell and you play the Chariot. Like, you get two tokens and they can't even kill the Chariot that turn because you can't. it's not a creature. So they, they're put in a spot where they have to either do nothing with their mana or kill a 2-2 cat or, like, maybe a mana accelerant after you've already gotten the value from it. Disaster for them. Yep, and this is where sort of your sense, you're paying attention to sort of response windows where your opponent, you know, where maybe you took an action and then it took met your opponent took a second to click back. Maybe that's like a tell that they have something that they could always be playing on full control if it's arena. But in general, trying to have have a sense for what's going on is going to be really important because, 
you know, one of the harder decisions you'll be presented with this deck is like, do you play Chariot? Do you play Winota if you have them both? But in general, um, you're going to want to, if you're trying to beat removal, getting the Chariot out of turn where they've been holding up mana, oh, it's Chef's Kiss. And that's one of the things where, and one of the reasons why I always tell people, like, if you want to, like, really get good at magic, it's worth investing in just trying to play all of the decks a little bit. It's not important that you necessarily achieve mastery with them, but it's unbelievable just how quickly you will pick up when you play them. Things like, oh man, whenever I pass with mana up and my opponents just play Chariot instead of Winota, it's just so soul-crushing because not only did I waste the mana for this turn, but now I have to hold it up in a future turn. I might not, and if they go like a Winota on the same turn, well, now I can't even deal with both the Chariot and the Winota, maybe because the removal spells are too expensive and it's just too much coming at me. And so, yeah, there, there's a lot you can do to play against removal. And one of the biggest things, and let's let's dive into this topic, Luis, because this is going to be probably one of the harder things to do, one of the harder things for people to do or accept or learn is every time you have four mana and you have a non-human creature in play, you don't have to play Winota. It's not mandatory. Yeah, it doesn't have provoke. You don't. Have, it doesn't jump out of your hand. And we, we just spent you know twenty minutes talking about how this deck actually has good late game. Lead into that. You know, not even just chariot. Just if you don't, you don't need to slam Winota. You can play your Minsk. You can play your Kenrith. I mean, in some cases, you can activate Lair of the Hydra. Like this deck has the tools to beat your opponent without Winota. So if they're playing in a way that would not be normal because they're trying to account for Winota, you have the option to to punish them by doing basically everything but Winota, because Winota is going to be good even if you you play it later. And if they're not pressuring you, if they're leaving mana up, if they're hindering their own development, that gives you the window to do other things. In fact. Sometimes you just play Elite Spellbinder instead. It seems like a much weaker play, but it'll, it'll give you an idea of what they've got. And that's part of the reason the Spellbinder is so brutal is besides just, you know, messing with their curve, it lets your opponent know or lets you know when you, you look at your opponent like, oh, they don't have a way to kill Winota or they have this way to kill Winota, but that's not going to be good against my next play. Like, you know, you're allowed to cast Blade Historian. <laughs> totally. And I mean... I, I kind of want to just talk about all the spots where we don't have the cheat code of of Elite Spellbinder. No, I mean, it obviously it's fantastic for all the reasons you mentioned. And it's one of those things, it's like, if you play a lot with this deck with Elite Spellbinder, uh, you, you're going to get a lot of spots where it's just like, oh, I just kind of know what they have in their hand because I saw it a turn or two ago. Um, the really hard ones, the ones that'll sort of test your skill that you'll need to experiment with. And sometimes you'll get it right, sometimes you'll get it wrong is all of those spots where it's, I don't know what they have. Is it worth taking this risk? Do I feel like I'm going to paid off enough? One of the big things that makes Winota special is that because it doesn't just trigger off of the first non-human attacking, it triggers off of each of them. Anytime your opponent's like leaving up mana, looks like they're holding up removal, and you just play one more non-human attacker, it just means that if you eventually do get to a point where maybe you can go selfless savior plus Winota in the same turn, fire off the Winota, it's just going to be for even more. And so there's lots of things that you can do. One of the ways, one of the really helpful ways to think about this style of gameplay is you kind of get to like double stone rain your opponent if they have a power word kill. And over multiple turns, you're not playing your Winota they, and they don't have an instant that they want to play in that spot. That just means they're wasting two mana each turn. That's a really powerful thing to do in a game of Magic. And sometimes it's, you know, you want to force them to have it because it's important that you not let them get away with it in the games where they didn't. You don't have that much possibility of ultimately beating it. 
But when you get to that spot in a game where you, and this is the thing you're going to do more often when you're winning, of if you've got them on the hook where they are just wasting their time, they're not developing, they're not dealing with your other threats, don't let them off the hook. <laughs> you, there's nothing that says you have to do this for a turn or two and then just put shields down. Luis, how, I know you and I have, I know you've had plenty of times where it's like you've been able to dupe opponents because they're like, surely at this point they would have just played the darn thing and then they go tap out and then it's like, nope, had it all along. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite games of all time is it was in the Vintage Super League where I was playing in Steven Manedian, who also is very good at being patient. And I had a Yawgmoth's Will and an Ancestral Recall in my hand that I just didn't play for like 12 turns. And I did end up winning the game by playing those two cards in the same turn alongside a bunch of counter spells. And yeah, that's an extreme example, but I, I have definitely gotten a lot of value off of just realizing I don't have to do the thing that your opponent expects you to do. And that can often cause them uh, a lot of trouble. One of the biggest things I would stress here is that if you're trying to get better at this thing, um, you really need to work on your mental game in the sense of, there are so many emotions and biases that will affect these kinds of decisions. Um, when I was getting started playing tournaments, the stakes and the adrenaline of the tournaments would make me so want, want to just know what was going to happen. I would sometimes play into things in spots where I shouldn't because it was just, I would just, it's not that I wanted the game to be over, but it was like, it was very alluring this idea that I could just have the tension be dissipated by me just playing my thing. And likewise, I've had games where it's like I held something and it just became clear that I just sort of played myself. Maybe they had it, maybe they didn't, but I was just sort of playing the game totally the wrong way. And all of these things are examples and moments where it is extremely loud that you and just choosing to either basically play the game or not play the game in the sense of holding back a key card is determining your outcome. And it's a very like high pressure and can feel an, like an anxious moment. It doesn't need to be. It's just a game. You're just trying things. You're just learning. You're trying to get better. But you want to have a really healthy relationship with this stuff. And you don't want to beat yourself up too much if it's like, you know what? I just kind of wanted to see what was going to happen in this game if I just never played into it. And and the result should hopefully be is that you learned something from this experience. And you, you learned that maybe there was a clue or a hint to what was going on in your opponent's hand. And if you spend time able to both passionately care about what you are doing in the game, but to not such a degree that you will let your emotions cloud your judgment and influence your decisions. That is where you can make big leaps because these kinds of like, I'm just not going to play the best card in my deck for multiple turns. These are the kinds of really hard decisions that separate the good players from the great players. The last tip we had was you should conserve selfless savior. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's that's like that's a much simpler tip, but I'm curious. But I I would guess Luis is either going to agree with what I just said, or he's going to flippantly disagree. <laughs> I I do agree with what you said, and I I find magic to be the most interesting when you get to make plays like you've described. When you don't make the play of, hey, I'm going to play the card that makes the most sense on this turn. This is the turn I'm supposed to play it. When you find good reasons to not do that, obviously people find bad reasons to make bad plays all the time. But the the games I have that stick out at me, the the lessons that I've learned, and the really what keeps me coming back to Magic is the times when it is correct to not play your you know your 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 Winota, your your really high power combo piece when your opponent expects it, but it's also like on the board correct. Uh, you know, one of the best matches I ever played 
in my entire career was against Gabriel Nassif where he just didn't take the bait. He never made, you know, in a couple key spots, the plays that he quote unquote should make and the plays that I'm fairly confident 95% plus of people I could face in that spot would have made. And I believe he beat me as a result. And that's why he was uh, the pro tour champion that weekend. And I wasn't. Yeah, that's definitely the best argument for being patient and playing in those spots is when you do pull that off, when you do reveal, you were the most calculating, patient, trapping player that you could be. Your opponent knows. Like, they know. And we've I've been on both sides of it, and it's just such a good feeling on one side. And, and uh, if you enjoy the soul-crushing experience on the other side, um, this is a good – this can be a, a nice way to play the game sometimes. But but seriously though, you should conserve selfless savior. It's really good to protect your notice. <laughs> yep, I mean it's if if there is a two card combo in this deck, it is have five mana play selfless savior and then Winota right afterwards. Yeah, the old splinter twin combo, and uh, it, it just it can be tempting to protect like a lotus cobra or to protect like you know an Asika's chariot, and sometimes it'll be correct to do those. I'm not saying you should never do those, but the value of basically getting an, uh, an extra Winota for one mana is generally higher than anything else in the deck. All right. So going on into the late game, we've, this is some stuff that we've already started to touch off of. And so whether we're talking about things like being able to fire your lair of the Hydra, that's really great. We've talked about similarly, Minsk gets a very similar sort of thing. It's worth noting that Minsk can target more than just boo with that X ability. And so there's lots of things that you can do with Minsk. And when we get into, you know, we mentioned a Crone Wars in the sideboard. If, hey, if you steal their creature, you can use X is equal zero with Minsk to make the stolen creature a zero zero. So you don't give it back. It just dies. Um, things like Hardcast Blade Historian are great. I would say the biggest one, the one that you're going to want to spend the most time like thinking through, planning out, because there's so many options, is Kenrith. Kenrith, with five different activated abilities, and thanks to Jaspera Sentinel, Lotus Cobra, and Treasures, you have the ability to access all five of those activated abilities. So figuring out when there's spots where you might want to draw cards with the blue ability, use the green ability as a combat trick, keep yourself alive with the white one, or bring your own things back with the black one, that's big. Um, the best interaction I love with Kenrith is the fact that the red ability gives everything trample. And that means that we're combining it with that heart, that blade historian, the double strike ability. So now all of a sudden double strike and trample. All right. Now it's getting really impossible for your opponent to have a profitable block. The, the, the whole Kenrith thing is actually really funny. Just the fact that it's got three different cards that can activate the, the off color abilities. And Kenrith is a really threatening card in the late game. I, I'm still weirded out by the fact because Kenrith is like this like weird box topper card that like kind of doesn't read as like a magic card to me. Like obviously it is a magic card. It's done very well for itself. It's won it won the world championships, right? Paulo was playing Fires or whatever that weekend. Um, I think he was at least. I, I, don't, I don't remember. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, pa- the- uh, Paulo beat Marcio. Okay. Um- Marcio was playing Fires, and I believe Paul was playing Blue-White. Control. All right, that's, that sounds right. Uh, but in any case, Kenrith has a well-accomplished resume at this point. It is just funny because it, it's a five-color activation card. It doesn't look like it's the thing that's going to show up in high-tier standard deck, but it certainly does, and you should be aware of all the abilities uh, in, in the deck. Uh, you've also got, you know, Lair of the Hydra. Ranger class is one really worth mentioning because that that's the one that in the long, long games can actually get you there where – it's a weak creature early, a two mana two two. The pump ability can actually add up pretty nicely, but the real money in the in the stalled out games is the fact that it turns into an Oracle of Moldiah for creatures. You just get to play creatures off the top of your deck, and 
this deck's full of creatures. Sometimes you activate Ranger class and play two to three cards a turn. Pretty easy to bury your opponent when you do that. All right. So the next part we're going to get into, Luis, how, how do you feel about sideboarding? I know, I know everybody loves a good sideboarding guide, and we're not going to go into the exact pluses and minuses. If you want to get that, I would recommend checking out Luis's article. But we're going to be talking a little bit about the sideboarding theory and sort of what's going on in the matchup and why in particular we like certain cards and how to play with them. So if Luis's article is giving you very nuts and bolts, here's what to bring in, take out, that sort of thing, we're going to try to help you understand better how to play these sideboarding games and how to use these cards. The, the first thing I want to say is, is I don't have a firm recommendation on a sideboard for this weekend because I trust people to judge do a decent amount of judging the metagame uh, based on like up-to-date information. I mean, we're getting pretty close to the weekend and I can tell you the cards I like the most, but at the end of it, like sideboarding, it's really, it's really hard to know. Should you have the, you know, second Akroan Ward, a third Burning Hands, the the, the fourth Red Cap Melee? I, I don't know. But what I do know is we can go over the matchups and talk about which cards are good in which matchups and you can get a sense of it. Uh, one is Gruul. That's going to be one of the bigger matchups. In fact, that was the most played deck at the, in the Challenger Gauntlet this weekend and I presumably because the people thought that it beat Winota there you're <laughs> going to want uh the Akron War and Burning Hands are, are among your better ones Burning Hands kills a Lovestruck Beast which which is always pretty nice uh while also being able to just pick off Edgewell Innkeeper and then Bone Crusher Giant because in the adventure style mirror I mean you're not playing adventures but you're playing a bunch of small creatures Bone Crushers are pretty good you get to kill a bunch of different things with them uh in general uh the cards I, I tend to like cutting post-board, and this goes for most matchups, is some amount of Blade Historian because your combo gets weaker across the board. Every single deck is going to bring an answers to Winota, and Blade Historian is the weakest card on its own because it's just so hard to cast and relies the most on Winota. So I think it makes sense to, to trim that. You can also trim some Mana Accelerants, just like Jasper Sentinel, for example, because, again, they're hitting you with removal spells. You're not going to want to turn three a Winota into open mana uh, very often post-board. Not that you do, you love it pre-board, but pre-board they're usually forced to tap out because they don't have as much removal. And uh, past that, you can do some trimming here and there, though I, I, would, I wouldn't touch the Winotas. That, that, that's, that's the one I would not advise uh, taking any out of. Um, for Rogues, Rogues is actually one of the, I think, more like swingy matchups in terms of if you want, if you put four or five sideboard slots between Ox of Agonis and Clothies, you're going to do well against rogues. It's going to be really hard for them because they can't... And I played a bunch of rogues against Winota. You can't afford to board in like Cling to Dust or Soul Guide Lantern against Winota, in my opinion. The games just don't go that way where you, you play this like Cling to Dust your Ox sort of game. So if rogues flips an early Ox with one of its mill cards, one of its rune cards, which it kind of has to play, then it's really good for Winota. But I played against a bunch of Winota decks that are clearly trimming down to like two Oxen. Once you get to that point, it's a lot less consistent. So if you want to beat rogues, if you expect to face a lot of rogues, three oxes is, is the minimum I would consider. And then uh, clothies is just, just okay. I actually don't even like clothies that much. I probably wouldn't play any copies of it. But if you do have them, they are strong against rogues. Yeah, I mean, one of the big things that with rogues to me is always is when I'm in this kind of matchup, what ends up happening is I'm always like playing a bunch of removal on the rogue side. And then I'm still kind of to some a large degree relying on into the story to sort of help me have more things to do so that even if I am sort of one for wanting a bunch with the deck like this, I can ultimately get over on them. And Ox of Agonis and Clothies, one of the things that's so nice about them is that 
they're resilient to removal, and they keep they keep your graveyard underneath the number of cards necessary in order for something like into the story to go off. And then that just means you can actually just win these games where it's like, well, I had a Minsk and it was able to sort of two for trade in a positive way with a removal spell. Same thing with potentially like a Kenrith um, because maybe you got some added value out of it. And so all of these sorts of little things in the longer games that are happening with rogues can ultimately get you across the finish line there. Um, Moving on to, let's talk about Teamer for a second, Luis. I mean, obviously with the Teamer decks, you know, there's a lot of overlap with the Gruel Adventures deck. And so we've still got, you know, some of those same cards, which are good against the bigger green creatures like Burning Hands and the Crone War, which is great against sort of all the traditional adventure threats. Um, but here we're not necessarily recommending as much. You bring in something like Bone Crusher Giant just because they don't have as many of the sort of consistent, cheap, fragile creatures that something like Gruel Adventures might have that would allow you to uh, to catch up against them and sort of keep pace with what they're doing. A big difference between Teamer and Gruel is uh, Elite Spellbinder can actually be effective against Teamer because they're trying to play like a Luka or sometimes even hard cast uh, the Serpent, whereas uh, Gruel is obviously a, a low-curve Bone Crusher deck where I don't like Elite Spellbinder. So Again, kind of the same things, but just wanted to note that 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 they're the same base, like middle of the deck. Teamer goes up, Gruel goes down. You should you know board accordingly. Um, the mirror, of course, is very important. the The best card against Winota in the mirror, of course, is Red Cap Melee, one mana, kill a Winota. You know, does get stopped by Selfless Savior, but you know can't have it all. And then Bone Crusher Giant, tons of targets for this. It's also good in a grindier game. One thing I'm not sure about uh, is whether you'd want ranger class because on the one hand ranger class is really slow and like won't really interact well with a winota or early chariot it's just not on the same axis at all but on the other hand when both players have like are boarding in five or six more removal spells uh giant killer may be another option too does ranger class get better at that point once everyone just has tons of terminates i mean it's good against terminates yeah it's good against terminates i would feel pretty nervous about being able to take advantage well of the the third mode that's the kind of thing that would scare me a little bit is that it's not just like yes this game has gotten attritiony but it's like okay you eventually are going to need to spend four you know another two mana and then another four mana to um to get to that last chap mode and then it's like even at that point you're not necessarily maybe wanting to tap all the way down so you can ha- keep up one of these instant speed interaction sources with winota so i haven't played the matchup enough to be totally sure but I think I would be a little bit reticent, even though, you know, obviously it's it's a pretty strong card. You know, maybe one or two. It's not like we need to play uh, maybe more than that to get these kind of benefits. I would say the mirror to me is going to be a very interesting one to keep an eye on in terms of what evolutions people are making. Anytime you have a case of a deck like this, there's always going to be this temptation to shade a little bit more towards the mirror. And that's partly why, you know, you might see, you're seeing the numbers on things like a Crowan War... Um, and Burning Hands maybe a little bit lower than you saw recently so that you can fit in these red cap melees because it's we're just in sort of this space right now where it's like, you know, I love the Akron War. It's good against a lot of mid-range Naya type of stuff normally, but man, oh man, sorcery speed, four mana, not necessarily the thing you want against a card that's impactful as the turn it comes down as Winota. And then uh, the, the last thing I wanted to mention, even though Control has been largely pushed out of the format by, well, this deck, actually. Uh, also, just all the creature lands you were playing. You yeah. do not want to play against the Bugbear the, and um, Lair of the Hydra. 
Right. Uh, Ranger class is going to be in general good against anyone who goes overboard on removal. So I would consider, like, I, I would definitely pl- play like one main, one board, or perhaps two main, but I, I, I'd, I'd lean towards one main, one board. I want access to two Ranger classes, I think. And consider boarding it in against anyone who seems to be really packing tons of removal, regardless of what deck that is. That could be rogues. That could be mono green if they're just on tons of fight cards. Whatever it is, Ranger class is good against removal, but obviously bad in fast games because it's a very slow card. One deck that we didn't mention, um, but it's probably just worth uh, noting for a quick second is Saltai. And this is a deck that's... That's not a deck. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it is either, but (laughs) you, you never know... And sort of maybe it's someone will figure out a way to rebuild it. A big thing that what has pulled Sultai back in the format is like all of these little things about Sultai that are just so nice. Like, oh, I have all these binding of the old gods. And it's like, you're going to tap four mana in this format and expect to do that early? I don't know about that. And that's a, that's been a huge issue that has um, hurt Sultai in recent weeks. Um, but the big thing there is really you're going to want to play into sort of how much the deck eventually tries to like resolve a big sweeper like a Shadow's Verdict or an Extinction event and try to have things set up in a way so that you can capitalize immediately the turn afterwards with something that they weren't um, prepared for. And then also in general, I just don't really like playing against Elite Spellbinder that much whenever I play Sultai. Um, but, you know, so that's a card that that is just so important because when you have Elite Spellbinder and you sort of side into a few more mid-rangey tools, man, you could really find a good way to punch a hole through whatever the Sultai deck is doing. Yeah, not a deck. Anyway, uh, for... Not a deck. <laughs> so that wraps up what we're talking about from the Winota perspective, but we do want to cover a, a bit of playing against Winota because I know not everyone wants to play this deck. Personally, I, I would play Rogues this weekend. I still believe in... I believe in the Rogues, not not the Cleave as much. But uh, it, when you're playing against Winota, there's a couple cards worth mentioning. Uh, we already talked about Red Cat Melee. Raven Feeblement is one I'm really interested in out of Rogues. Uh, I would recommend playing like one main two board. This is... Black to give a creature minus four, minus one. But if it's a white creature, minus four, minus four. So it's a single black mana, so it's cheap. And uh, it gets around Selfless Savior because indestructibility doesn't help here. Plus, it can kill like a Lotus Cobra. Or it can just kill a Selfless Savior if that's what you're into. The other reason I really like Rogues is we talked uh, at length about like, oh, you leave mana up, they play Chariot, and they wasted all their mana or whatever, right? Or like, you know, the 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 the, the anti-Winota deck wasted all their mana. Well, Rogues can just play a Soaring Thought Thief or something like that in that spot. Plus, they have counter spells because another card I want to mention is Disdainful Stroke. Granted, control decks themselves aren't great right now, but I would play two Disdainful Strokes main and Rogues because it counters Asika's Chariot and counters Winota. Again, it gets around the Selfless Savior setup, and if they try to get around your removal by slamming Asika's Chariot, you can just Disdainful Stroke it. it. I think this is actually a very good time to be playing Disdainful Strokes. Yep, that makes sense. Uh, seems like a card that you just kind of want in the main deck right now, so I'm all, I'm all about that. And, you know, you should never be afraid to uh, potentially just go main deck with something if you really believe in it. Like, I'm not saying you want to play red cap, uh, me- red cap melee main deck, but, you know, if you ever did find yourself... This is the kind of spot at standard right now, given the levels of Naya Winota we're seeing right now, that if you were just playing something like Black Red X... I'd have to give some consideration uh, to just playing something like main cap, main deck, red cap melee. It's not like that card is just completely useless. You could combine it with cards and effects that like to sacrifice things as a way, and it just gives you just an incredible amount more game. And so those kinds of changes and tweaks are the kinds of things that can take a deck that 
in its current form seems untenable in the format and can actually bring it back. And then it's like you find out, oh, all of my natural enemies are just gone right now. So if there's a deck you've been enjoying in standard and maybe it's just a case where it's like, uh, I, I can't beat people. I, I just can't beat the Niawanota deck unless until the sideboarder games, you can just consider just throwing that sideboard card main. Uh, there's no rule that says that red cap melees and cards like this only get to live in the sideboard. Mystical Dispute just got to be in people's main decks for the last year. Don't let the blue players have all the fun if that's the right way to play a format. And then uh, I, we've mentioned it so far, but if you're going to try to beat Winota, make sure you do have a plan for a Seeker's Chariot and, and Ranger class. Those are two of the cards that kind of flip the script for, for all the reasons we mentioned. Yep, that was a huge thing playing against Rogues this past weekend, and we're playing with Rogues against it in the Arena Open for me, and it just meant that as my adoption to that in the format was to, or adaptation in the format rather, was to just leave in more creatures more often, more flyers, and just be a little bit more um, aware of the fact that, like, yeah, some extra tutus are just going to be floating around, and I don't want to be in a position where I have to just sort of literally kill everything on the board in order to win in the game. And so uh, the, the same goes for any kind of deck where it's like maybe you wouldn't in the past bring in something um, like a sideboard creature or a sideboard threat, but now it's the case where you maybe want to leave in more threats because this Winota deck just has such powerful non-creature sources of advantage that it's just going to really punish you if all you try to do in the game is kill all of their threats. And uh, the creature lands also factor into this because, you know, we never really talk about them as sort of like two-for-ones and that sort of thing. But in a lot of ways, they are. When you get to the spot of the game where it's tapped for you for five mana over the course of the game, and now all of a sudden it's consistently a 5-5 creature each turn, it really just is giving you a two-for-one. So the the last thing I really want to touch on for a second is, is gameplay strategies against Winota. Uh, one that I have found not to be successful is going after their mana, like killing Lotus Cobra or killing Jaspera Sentinel or, or killing Tangled Florahedron. You can do it, and, and clearly in some games it would be correct. But for the most part, I don't think you should be spending your removal spells unless you think you're really going to kill them that quickly. But most of the time you're just not. And I think killing their kind of weak mana accelerants, because these are also just not even that good. We're not talking Noble Hierarch here. You know, you're, <laughs> you're killing Jess Barrison. No, like, come on. Uh, you, you, yeah, the one exception I would give to that, Luis, is, is Lotus Cobra, because I played some games against Winota where it's like, I didn't. I never just killed the Lotus Cobra for all the reasons that we're talking about, and it's like uh, now I'm dealing with the two twos from the cat and the creature lands, and it's like I kind of wish I hadn't taken eight damage earlier in this game. Yeah, Lotus Cobra is the one I think you you are more like most likely uh, going to be able to or going to want to kill, but for the most part, I think you should usually not kill their accelerants. Oh, what you should do is is kill Selfless Savior because mm-hmm. it's going to trade for your removal spell anyway, unless, of course, you, you, you're a genius with Rave Enfeeblement. But if if you've got, like, a powered kill in hand and two mana and you have no other play and they have a Selfless Savior, you just have to kill the Selfless Savior. It's going to counter your spell at some point. Like, you're not really well, getting you, anything out of waiting. Do you, do you want to have the talk about how you handle a card like Selfless Savior when you have a removal spell? <laughs> we, we could do a whole episode on it. Maybe not a whole episode, but... <laughs> you should you should generally just kill the Savior itself instead of trying to kill something better and hoping they'll use it because like you're giving them a choice and maybe their hand dictates that they want to make a play that you wouldn't expect, yes. Yes, and while you have information in hand, it's so baseline... 
more common that the thing is, is that they have information that you don't know about that's way that's more valuable in a spot like that. And the bigger mistake is to let them get away with having a choice that they were not entitled to have in the game. If you kill the selfless savior, they get no choice about how to use it. If you target the other thing and then they choose not to sack the selfless savior, more often than not, if it if it it will be a mistake for you, then it will be for them. And like we can go deeper onto that topic. It's not the most important thing in the world, but um, because it probably is a good topic to go into for us. But if you want to play Titan Technical, almost always just kill the selfless savior. Don't kill. Don't go after the other creature. And uh, you kind of touched on this earlier, but yeah, you should be proactive. You unless you're unless you're like really well suited to play a control game, which either means you're playing control and probably have a tough time in the tournament overall, or you're playing rogues and have one of those into the story draws, you know, where you're like, get them to seven cards without maybe a ruin crab or whatever, but your hand is like, drown the lock, drown the lock, power word kill into the story, and you can just like out control them. That's that's pretty rare. Most of the time, you want to try to get the game over. You want to try to kill them because they have a lot more threats than you have answers in general. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I certainly picked up on pretty quick in the games is just all of those things, like we mentioned, the Lair, the Minsk, and it's just like a really good way to approach learning decks and learning formats is to think about these things in terms of patterns and trends and things that will reoccur in game to game. It's not like I had to play a lot of games against uh, this new version of Winota with Rogues to figure out, like, oh, yeah, yeah, this deck's got a lot of juice going along because the Minskas get more powerful, the Lair of the Hydras get more powerful, Ranger class, all of those things. And it's just like, if you were just sort of paying attention to the fact that the deck just has a lot of value from cards that use more mana, then it's just going to become quite obvious to you that, oh, okay, I need to not assume that I am just going to be much stronger than this deck going along because they have tools that are allowing them to also get stronger and their cards to get better as the game goes along. And so if you're looking at the cards through those lens, you don't need to get your face beaten in 20 t- in 20 games over a week by Lair of the Hydra to go like, you know what? It just seems like the data is saying that I don't win long games against Winota as much. You'll just sort of notice these things and start making adjustments faster. All right. Well, good luck to everyone playing Winota or or not. Anyone who listens to the podcast, we we, we wish you luck. And uh, hopefully this helped. We, we delved into standard for a couple weeks. So we'll see how things end up developing after this. We've got uh, a, some cool tournaments to watch. You know, you've got the Challenger Gauntlet to watch this weekend. We've got the Mythic Invitational Qualifier. And uh, I hope those go well for everyone involved. As always, this show is brought to you by ChannelFireball.com. So head on over to there and uh, pick up everything you need magic-related. And, of course, you can find me on social media, media at LSV and uh, BK at ABEXT. We'll see you next week. So first off, before I get into my regular sign-off, um, I do want to wish good luck to my friend and roommate Sam Party this weekend. He's playing in the Challengers Gauntlet. And, you know, I want to see him make it to Worlds, and I guess I want to see him be in the MPL, though I've already seen him get a video from Sir Mix-a-Lot, so I don't know how much more he has to accomplish there, but I would very much <laughs> like to see him do well this weekend and get to Worlds. But, you know, done uh, done some more serious uh, sign-offs recently, so I thought I'd mix it up with a little fun one for everyone at home. And I have been loving watching the 2020 olympics in the year 2021 i guess it's just one of those branding things uh but i uh, thought i'd share with you all some is, of the most the 2020 olympics yeah it's one of those things where it's just like 
you make all of the merch and you get all the branding and all the trademarks where it's like 2020 Olympics sort of just becomes like the name for the event, even though it's being held now delayed a year later. The most ridiculous example of this phenomena is when like NBC, their flagship show for um, showing football is, is off. Uh, Sunday night football. And so when they have a game on like a Thursday night, it'll, they'll still be using all of the branding and <laughs> sloganing that says Sunday night football. But uh, I'll give you a quick top five uh, favorite things that I've seen so far at these Olympics. Uh, first one in no particular order is uh, Logan Martin. He won the BMX freestyle. Um, he's from Australia. And so this is like one of the, it, this is one of those events where it looks like they're at like a skate park and they're doing tricks and getting scored and all of that. And so this was one an event where the way it was run, where it's if you're uh, you do two runs and it's the better of your two runs is your score. Well, he was the leader after round one, and then nobody beat his score in round two. And I didn't realize this, and so I'm watching him and go through his run, and he just early on in his run he just goes flying into the air. He just lets go of his bike. His bike literally does a flip, and then he's able to grab onto the bike and get back on. And it was just just so totally mind-blowing. And then after a trick or two later, he just all of a sudden stops. And it was like, I would watched another guy do a run. I was like, oh, something must have gone wrong. And then I realized what happened was I didn't realize he was just won his event already. He was, knew he was going to be the champion. He literally had nothing to do in the event. But he just decided to go out there and do some sweet moves. And to see him like pull off this move where he's literally – 20 feet up in the air with no control of his bike at all. And it's just like, I mean, talk about having a lot of confidence in something that I could never do. <laughs> uh, next up, Karsten Warholm. He won the 400 meter hurdles. He set a world record earlier this year in an event that hadn't had a world record in over 30 years. And it just amazing watching him just do the hurdles because they're so good now at the hurdles where it just doesn't even look like they're even changing their stride as they go over him. To give you a frame of reference, in the 400-meter hurdles, he won it in like 46 seconds, breaking his own world record by about a full second. And he was only about two seconds behind the times of the people who won the event that didn't have hurdles. And if you look historically, he would have won just the flat 400-meter sprint in every year in the Olympics up until 1960, so this Norwegian is just just an absolute boss at the hurdles, and it was just really cool watching him do that. Similarly, he's I had a, a, he's not a boss at ripping off his shirt, though. I can tell you that. Oh yeah, of course. After he won his race, he just rips his shirt like in half and just is like exposed his nipples, and it was very uh, Norwegian Viking like. It was uh, it was pretty cool to see uh, the nipple part a little less, uh, but the whole thing was. Well, pretty I just awesome. mean he, he 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 tried to rip off his shirt, but didn't quite get there. I maintain that if that guy can do hurdles the way that he can do and looked as fit as he can, that if he wanted to, that shirt would have ripped full in half. Yeah, he kind of like did this weird, like, like partial tear of it, which just made it look really weird. So I don't know. You, wow. get, you get docked points for that. Like, he's not the real hero of the Olympics. The real hero is the, the Brazilian guy who got bronze and reenacted the meme of the guy, like, biting the metal and kissing his girlfriend and, like, <laughs> and, like right. spraying champagne in his face, you know? <laughs> That's legit. We'll we'll add that one to the list for Louise. <laughs> Next up, I loved watching Cindy McLaughlin. She was the youngest female track athlete in generations in Rio. She came back this time around and won the 400-meter women's hurdles 
And she's definitely a name to know as she's sort of the she's only 21 years old and she is sort of the the rising star in women's track and field and will continue to be a name that you hear for uh, Olympics to come. But just watching her go out and just dominate and uh, go one, two with her testing partner, Delilah Muhammad. It was pretty cool because it was just like the moment the race ended, it was a super close finish just smiles between both of them just hugging and it was just seeing them just for them just like it's it's like it's like watching like a testing team it reminded me of like a pro tour it's like they had multiple people in the pro tour maybe both of their teammates ended up in the finals and it's just like they're just so happy to be there it's like at least one of us is going to win and that was a that was a cool thing to see uh next up just shout out to men's basketball kevin durant Never, never been on a team I've rooted for. Watching him just sort of take over and put Team USA on his back a couple of times in these games. And the U.S. has had some tough games, but I absolutely just love it. And it's just like, it's when you get to watch a truly special athlete play for your team, it, there's there's almost no feeling like it where it's just like you watch him do these things. You get to see the despair in the other team's faces. And it's just like, I, I just feel so good that I got this guy on my side. Uh, and then lastly, big shout out to Simone Biles. Obviously, uh, if you paid any attention to the Olympics, you're familiar with the struggles she had where she was having some real sort of mind body sort of connection issues where she's the greatest female gymnast of all time, but just was in a spot where she couldn't, she was losing her sense of awareness of where she was in the air, a very dangerous situation for someone who's launching herself into the air with regularity and flipping multiple times over. She needs to know where she is if she's going to land. But she, you know, she had to pull herself out of a few events because she knew if she put herself out there and competed, she was at risk for just really catastrophic injury, but managed to sort of get herself back into a headspace where she was able to go out, compete in the balance beam and get a bronze, which and just to give you an idea, you know, she said it was the most meaningful medal that she's ever won. And this is this is a woman who's won lots of gold medals in the world championships and the Olympics. But just seeing somebody who was so willing to both pull themselves out of an event that they've trained four plus years for five years now, and then deal with all the ridicule and the criticism overseas. And then not just be like, well, at least I stepped, got out of it. And now I don't have to deal with it anymore. But to be like, no, I'm in a, I'm in a bad spot. I'm not feeling my best right now, but I actually want to get better. I actually really do want to compete and I'm willing to expose myself and maybe get ridiculed if things don't go well. And for her to get back up there and win bronze in the balance beam, to me, those are the kinds of stories that make both sports and the Olympics great. And one of the reasons why I like to watch, it's not like I'm a huge inherent gymnastics fan, but it's really cool when you get to see these stories and hear how these people go about dealing with these kinds of struggles, because just the idea of what do you do when it feels like everyone's out against you, there's too much pressure on you, you're not sure if you can handle it. I mean, these aren't sports stories. These are just human stories. And so getting to see somebody do that and excel on such a big stage, uh, very inspiring stuff to see. So, uh, but, you know, the the Olympics aren't quite over. There's only a few days left if you want to still catch up some cool stuff. But, you know, it's easy to be cynical about a lot of things. And obviously there's a lot of, you know, political things that can happen at the Olympics. And there's always corruption and cheating and scandals and all this and that. But to me, there is something just special about seeing like to some degree, at least it's there's nothing pure in this world. But as far as humanity coming together and competing just for the love of competition as magic player, as a magic player, I can appreciate it. And so it's something that I always look forward to each every four years.